Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. All right. Thank you, Brian. And if you need a Bible this morning, ushers have them in hand. Just wave at one of them and they'd be happy to pass one to you. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. All right. And... Um, Oh, yes, I forgot. Um, Freen wanted to share with you an update on his mom. There you go. Thank you, sir. I just want to ask real quick a question. Do you trust him? (laughs) Do you trust him? Do you trust him? That's easy to say when things go our way, good things happen, but when tragedy happens, do you trust him? My wife and I have had a lot of different things, tragedies in our lives, and so if you are going through that, you know, I just want to speak to you, if you know that, you've had tragedy in your life, do you trust him? Um... If my mother had not recovered, I would still trust him. But praise the Lord. When I went to, flew out there and walked in her room, her eyes were open. And I said, hey, Mom. And she said, hey, son. If you didn't know, my mother had been in a terrible accident was unconscious for over a week. I said, I love you, Mom. And she said, I love you, son. Mom, God has healed. She Mm -hmm. is going through physical therapy and speech therapy, but we tell from the last conversation that she's getting back to normal. Praise God. Amen. Amen. But I could not leave this without telling you because I know my wife, her mother, went to be with the Lord years ago. And I know for some of us, some of you, it's a different story. But, and just real quick, I thought about all these people that lost their lives in Georgia recently during the um, tornadoes. And people say, how can you say God is good? When... He allows that kind of stuff to happen. And I'll tell you how I know God is good. Because he's there. No matter what, good or bad, he's there. And he will not leave you. And he will not forsake you. And that's how I know. He will not leave you. God is good. No matter what happens, he's in control. Amen. Amen. Thanks, friend. Yes, he is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. As we, uh, we've, last couple of weeks we've laid foundation. Today we dive into the very first beatitude. Jesus talks about, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is... 
to receive this message and to walk it out is not easy. So I'm going to warn you in advance. This is a tough one. It's a hard one. It's one that, uh, and even when you think maybe you've understood it and you've received it and you're walking in it, the Lord wants to take you to new places. And it's been my experience over recent weeks as I'm just kind of wrestling through this again in a fresh new way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy. This inward rest, this inward wholeness, this inward, I mean, happy really is a good word, a true happiness, because that's really what we're talking about. Jesus' goal in this message, this first public message that's recorded for us, his goal is true happiness. He wants you and me, he wants those of us who are in Christ to experience. Matter of fact, the ones in Christ are the only ones who can experience true happiness. Outside of Christ, it is an impossibility. And so as he begins to lay it out, it literally is so contrary and so different than anything you would ever think when you start talking about happiness. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, it's really important to understand exactly what he's talking about here. Because some would say, he's saying blessed are the poor. In other words, if you financially don't have a lot, then you're blessed and you're happy. And there are even anecdotal, you know, anecdotal stories and, and sayings and things that kind of go along with that. Here's the challenge, though. That's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. The Greek word that's used here, poor, there's two primary Greek words used in the New Testament. And the word used here is tokos. The word tokos literally means to cringe, to cower down. It, it's used of a beggar. It's used of Lazarus. Remember the story of Lazarus? where he, he, stood out, he stood outside the gate of the rich man. He was outside the home of the rich man, and he begged all the time. It's often used in connection with uh, being maimed or lame or blind or having physical infirmity that keeps you from being able to care for yourself, to be able to work a job, to be able to do the things that you would like to do. You are physically incapable of doing that. And so your life is dependent because in this day and age, in Jesus' day, there wasn't a welfare system. There wasn't a, a, a safety net, if you will. There weren't different agencies in place to say, okay, we want to make sure that if you're in this place that you're taken care of. None of that existed. And so in Jesus' day, when you were in this condition, the only thing that you could do is you could sit and you could beg and you would hope and pray that someone would have mercy on you. Otherwise, you die. And many did. Many would die right there on the side of the road. This is the word poor. It doesn't necessarily mean financially poor, although it can, but that is not the connotation here. So that word, poor, is a different Greek word that's used. Remember the widow who came into the temple and she gave two mites and Jesus saw her and said she has given all. She's given more than everybody else because she gave all that she had. You remember that? It said she was a poor widow, that's the other Greek word. That's the one that means you are financially poor. It means you have just enough to get by. You're a day laborer, if you will. You're living paycheck to paycheck. And you're making it, but you're just barely making it. All right? That's the word poor that is used, the other word that's used. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He says, no, the poor in spirit, the one who is a beggar in spirit, the one who is completely destitute without the mercy of other people, they have no hope. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. And Matthew adds in spirit. Luke doesn't add, and when Luke gives this account of Jesus' teaching, he just says, blessed are the poor. 
He doesn't add the in spirit part. Matthew adds that. It gives us greater understanding because he's not talking about necessarily an external poverty or, or, or lack of resources. He's talking about something that's happening within. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me say it a different way. Blessed are the ones who recognize their desperate, daily, continual need. Blessed are they. Now I know that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't sit well with us. doesn't sit well with me. I like to think of myself as an independent person. I was raised, not only as an American, but I was raised in a very independent home. You figured out a way to do it yourself. That was, and if you didn't, well, that was, that was just unthinkable. It was unthinkable. You figure out a way. You make it happen. You can do it. You pull yourself up. You don't ask for help. You just do it. I was raised in that atmosphere. I, and, and many of you were. And the reality is, we grow up thinking, and we believe, based on our culture, that this is godly. This is the way God wants us. I mean, isn't it in the Bible that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Isn't that in there somewhere? Isn't it in there that it says God helps those who help themselves? That's in the Bible somewhere. Yeah, it's over in Hezekiah, all right? By the way, Hezekiah is not a book, um, all right? It, 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 there is no place in Scripture where it says God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere. Nowhere. Well, it's alluded to, sort of, but not really in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Because under the Old Covenant, it was like God will do His part, and then you do your part, and everybody's happy. But that didn't work so well. That's the reason we have a New Covenant. We call it the New Testament. Because we can't help ourselves. We're incapable of helping ourselves. When the Scripture says, apart, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But immediately my mind starts saying, Lord, there's a lot of stuff I can do without you. I mean, I've done all kinds of stuff this morning without you. And the Holy Spirit says, and that's your problem, Troy. You really believe that you did things without me. You think you can do it. Well, Lord, I got myself up only because I gave you life. The kids have friends whose father, who's 45 years old, died in his sleep last Sunday night. He was, he, they had a service for him Friday. He went to be with the Lord. He knew the Lord. But he went to church on Sunday, went to bed on Sunday night, did not wake up on Monday morning. See, you don't wake yourself up. Jesus wakes you up. And say, well, I feed myself. No, you don't. I take care of myself. I, go, I work hard. I'm sure you do. But only because he gives you strength to do so. There is a revelation that needs to take place for each one of us in different ways in different areas where the Holy Spirit has to keep showing me in, in more vivid ways that I literally can do nothing without Jesus. Nothing. And there is, in that, I have to see, the problem is, is we believe that if I think this way, I'm going to have a terrible self-image. I'm going to be, I'm on an awful self-esteem problem. When the exact opposite is true. As a matter of fact, we've focused so much over the last 20 or 30 years on self-esteem, but I don't know that it's helped anybody's self-esteem. But we've focused tremendously on that. We have done, we have literally changed culture to try to help people feel better about themselves. And yet, we feel worse about ourselves. As a whole. It's 
over and over again, statistically, Americans are the most unhappy people on the planet. We consume more in the way of drugs, whether legal or illegal, to help us deal with our emptiness and our unhappiness. We find more and more ways to be entertained and diverted from our unhappiness. We spend billions and billions on pleasure, and yet we're unhappy. We are a living testament. We are living proof that what Jesus said is true. And so the challenge to me, as I go back through this, and the challenge I give to you, is that maybe we should believe Jesus when he says, happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to tell you something, too. You know what this reminds me of, these two Greek words? It reminds me of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because under the Old Covenant, we're, we're working. We're doing our best. We're trying hard. Um, we're never quite satisfied. We never quite have enough. But we're working really hard at it. Matter of fact, you can still be that way today as a New Testament believer, as a New Covenant believer. We call that legalism. Legalism is, okay, yeah, I know God saved me, but now I've got to do my part. And so I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to try hard, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to prove that I'm worthy of this. I'm going to prove that I love the Lord. I'm going to prove these different things. And, folks, it's miserable. We're, I was miserable. I was miserable. Legalism is basically the poor person who has just enough. They got just enough to survive. But that's it. There's never any satisfaction in it. There's never any really satisfying of that hunger. There's never any sense of, ah, I'm loved, I'm approved, I'm accepted, I'm cared for. I'm, I'm loved just because I'm me, not because of what I do, not because of what I accomplish. Jesus just loves me because it's who he is and he loves me. See, that is the beggar. The one who comes and says, I can't do it. I have no hope. Apart from your mercy, I have no hope. By the way, Jesus starts here because this is where you have to start. You cannot enter into the kingdom. What is the promise that goes along with this? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot enter the kingdom unless you come to this place. If you say, Troy, I just can't, I can't come to that place. I can't do that. Then I have bad news for you. You're not in the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom. You say, Troy, that's too harsh. You can't say that. I'm not saying it. Jesus did. You have to start here. You cannot be saved. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot be born again. You cannot, all these terms that we use, you cannot be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light unless you start here. This is how you come to Jesus. I cannot save myself. Jesus, I need you. I can't do it. That's why Jesus starts here, because everything starts here. Now, here's the problem, though. We get saved. We believe this, and we, okay, I make this confession. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't work hard enough. I can't do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad, and so I need Jesus. And we'll confess that, but then I get saved, and somehow or another, this mindset comes back in, but now that I'm saved, I can, I can work hard enough. I can, I can do this, and Jesus is saying, that's why you're not happy. Because you keep believing that you somehow can do this, and you can't. 
There's a great example of this in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. You know the story. It's the church at Laodicea. And by the way, they get a bad rap, the church at Laodicea. You know, we usually talk about them. We, we paint them in a really bad way. And there's a reason for that because of what it says in Revelation 3. But if you go back in Colossians, Paul writes to the, the church at Colossae and he says, hey, when you're done reading this letter, make sure you send it over to the church at Laodicea. There was a relationship between Paul and the church of Laodicea. And what I'm telling you is they didn't start out the way they ended up in Revelation chapter 3. They didn't start that way. But what does it say in Revelation chapter 3 about them? This is the Spirit of the Lord speaking to the church in Laodicea. He says, for you say, I am rich and I have prospered. The King James says, I'm increased with goods. You say, I'm rich, I've increased with goods, I'm prospered, I have need of nothing. Not realizing, you don't see, you don't understand, there hasn't been revelation. It hasn't sunk in internally with you that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, the word poor there is the word poor that we're looking at. It's the one for beggar. It's tokos. You don't recognize. Here's the thing, folks. Every one of us are tokos this morning. The question is, do we recognize it? Every single one of us are in the same boat. We are all beggars. We are all in need of God's mercy. Every one of us. The only question is, do I realize it? Do I recognize it? Am I aware of it? Do I receive it? And do I respond accordingly? For you say I'm rich and increased. And we read that. He goes on, look at verse 18. Counsel, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you, may be that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus doesn't leave us in the place where, hey, you're, you're a beggar, you're in desperate shape, you have no hope. He does not leave us there. He says, but I have an answer for you. I have something for you. And if you'll ask me, I'll give it to you. You can receive it. It's yours. I want you to look at this next passage with me. I believe it's in Luke. And in Luke 14, it says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor. Again, this is this word here. This beggar, the one in desperate need. The cripple, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's a, it's an interesting passage when you think about it. When you begin to look at these two Greek words, that not only do we recognize ourselves as beggars, but then we begin to look around and say, okay, Lord, how do you want me to minister? How do you want me to live my life? He's saying, let me point out to you those around you who are in desperate need, who recognize I won't make it without the Lord's help. He said, why don't you spend your life investing there? Investing there. You say, what about people who don't recognize it? You share there too. You love where you can. But there is a clear distinction that the New Testament makes here about those who, with the recognition of, I am in need. And I can't do this on my own. It's, it's been said often, and it's true, you can't get saved until you first get lost. You can't. It's an impossibility. The same is true for a believer. You can't be a beggar in spirit until you recognize that you're not a beggar in spirit you have to recognize it the holy spirit has to reveal it to you and you have to receive it there are examples of this throughout scripture of this poverty of spirit would you look with me in genesis you see this 
in Genesis 18, this is Abraham. Abraham answered, Behold now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. He comes with an attitude, a spirit that says, Lord, I'm not coming on my own authority. I'm not coming in my own righteousness. I'm not coming in my own power. Lord, I'm dust and ashes, but I'm coming to speak to you. Look at this next one. It goes on, I believe it's Genesis 32. You see the same thing in Jacob. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. He's coming back. This is where Esau, and by the way, here's a prayer that something the Lord prompts me often. It may be something that he prompts you with. Jacob has, has come, he's coming back from Laban and a far country. He's coming home, and he's been prospered. He's a wealthy man. He's got a family. He's got all this. But Esau, his brother, whom he cheated and stole from and lied to, he's coming out to meet him with an army. Scripture says with 400 men. He wasn't coming out with 400 men to say, hi, Jacob, welcome home. He was coming to kill Jacob, and Jacob knew it. And Jacob comes before the Lord, and he humbles himself. Here's my problem. I think as I begin this journey that often I humble myself because there's so much pressure. I, I recognize I have no other choice. But here's the beautiful thing. On a daily basis, the Holy Spirit can cause me to have that same sense, to have that same recognition, so I don't have to have the world crumbling down on my head to recognize I need Jesus, that I need help. Even like we were talking about here a moment ago, I knew when I had four or five thoughts in a row and all of them made me angry, I knew something was going on inside of me and I needed help. I needed help. I didn't have to have the world crumbling down on me. I didn't have to have it all crashing on my head. It was enough. The Holy Spirit said, you need help. This is an attack. You need help. And I receive help. Let's not be like Jacob. Let's be poor in spirit before the guy's coming to kill us. Look at the next passage with me. Exodus 3, this is Moses. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's making all kinds of excuses, and Lord, I can't do this, and I, I, don't, I can't speak, and I stutter, and I have all these problems. I can't communicate well. Now, here's what I love, that Jesus doesn't come back and do what the world tries to do. And say, oh, don't say that about yourself, Moses. No, you're a great guy, and you've got all kinds of talents, and you, you've got all kinds of... That is not what the Lord says to Moses. Look what he says in verse 12. He said... I will be with you. All of that's true and more than you realize, Moses. You're worse off than you think. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because I will be with you. And when that happens, everyone will recognize God's doing this because it's not in Moses. He can't do this. I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. And that happened. You see these examples over and over again. Let me show you some others, and we won't read all of them, but let me show you some other examples. Because there are these examples of poverty of spirit all through. David in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, you see the humility. Now, here's the thing. In these first two, David and Solomon, actually in Job too, really. But in David and Solomon in particular, they started well, and then there were times of pride and arrogance, and they, and they fell. But there was a repentance and there was a coming back to this place of poverty of spirit and humility. For Solomon, it took a lot longer. For David, it was, it was quicker. But David was one of those who, on several different occasions, got lifted up in pride. You remember, 
He was winning battles and God was using him. He was walking with the Lord. And all of a sudden he got this idea. The enemy came with this idea. Hey, why don't you count all the people and see how many you've actually got? Find out how many warriors you've actually got, how many people you've got. Why? Because that makes perfect worldly sense. You need to know how many people you've got. You need to know how you're winning all these battles. The Lord says the way you're winning all these battles is I'm winning them for you. It doesn't matter whether you have 100 or 100,000. So David begins to number the people and scripture says a plague broke out. And David had to repent, make an offering. So he humbled himself with Bathsheba. David's, first of all, the beginning of that story with Bathsheba, it says, at the time when kings go out to battle. In other words, when David should have been out, with, engaged in the battle, he stayed behind. I don't know why. Maybe he thought, you know, I may be a little higher than other kings. Maybe other kings need to go out and do this, but I got folks who can do this. I don't need to. And then he's kind of lounging around in the day and looks out and he sees and thinks, you know, why can't I? I'm the king. Why can't I have what I want? That pride, that arrogance, that, you know what? I deserve this. Now, David does repent, but there are tragic consequences that come. And you see this. There's a humility in David as he starts. There are times where pride comes in and he humbles himself. But in all, if you look at the whole of David's life, he walks in this poverty of spirit. Solomon is the same way. We were talking about this as we were working yesterday. Some of the guys. Solomon started so well to end up where he ended up. But if you read there in 1 Kings 3, 7, you see his prayer. He really had a, just a, there was a humble spirit about him. Lord, I can't do this. I can't lead this great people. But I want to do a good job leading your people. Lord, help me. Would you give me what I need to be able to lead your people and to care for them and to be a good leader and a good ruler? That's a humility of spirit. It's a poverty of spirit. Job in Job 42, 5 and 6. Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. And the Lord didn't say, that's not true, Isaiah. No, he says, I'll take care of it. I'll bring coal from off the, off the altar and touch your lips. I'll purify. I will make whole what is not whole. I'll take care of it. John the Baptist, you see this. He says, I'm not worthy to bow down and undo his sandals, the one who comes after me. Paul, you see it in the example of Paul. When Paul talks about the fact that he is, when he's weak, then he's strong. He talks about all of his achievements and all of his accomplishments, which the world would say, man, you have done it, Paul. You're the man. And, and Paul says, I count it all as garbage. It's all garbage for the privilege, the honor of just knowing Jesus. Peter. We don't know this from Scripture, although if you read 1 Peter, you can see humility all the way through 1 Peter. It's amazing how much of just that spirit of humility, that poverty is in Peter's writing there. And we don't know because the Scripture doesn't tell us, but Christian history tells us that Peter was so humbled, and he didn't start that way, but the Holy Spirit had worked this in him, that when it came time for him to die, they crucified him. And, and tradition tells us that he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Would you turn me upside down? There's a humility, there's a poverty of spirit. There's one more example I want you to look at with me. Luke 18. Because if this is necessary, and it is, I'm telling you all of the Christian life is dependent upon Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. All of it. To experience the Christian life the way Jesus intended for us to experience it, we have to understand, receive, and walk in Matthew 5, 3. You have to. 
You say, okay, well, how do I do that? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? How do I do this? In my younger days, I would have given you a list. I'd have had 14 things up on there. And so you take that list, and you go work really hard at it. And you get some accountability partners to make sure they pop the whip, make sure you work hard at it. And you come in, and when you mess up, you confess a lot and cry a lot of tears, and then go back and work hard at it again. And I would have, I mean, it wouldn't have been that blatant, but in general, that's what I would have told you. And I would have been dead wrong. Dead wrong. So I began to ask the Lord, I said, Lord, I know in my flesh what I would tell myself and what I would tell all the folks. This is how you do it. So how would you tell us to do it, Jesus? And I, I really didn't know. I was just asking the Lord, Lord, how, how would you tell us to do this? And he brought me to this parable, and I saw it in ways I had never seen it before. And he said, here's how you do it. Look at this. I mean, I asked the question. Now, look how Jesus answers the question in verse. I know I've read this verse a thousand times, but I never saw it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, I told, matter of fact, a lot of times Jesus didn't tell why he was speaking a parable. And then the disciples would come later and say, would you explain that parable? It doesn't make any sense to us. And then he would tell them. In this case, he made sure we knew in advance why he was saying. He said, I'm telling this parable because there are those who think they don't need me. They can do it on their own, that they're good enough on their own. They're capable enough on their own. And by the way, not only do they feel that way, but they look around at other people and have contempt because why can't you do what I do? Just do what I do. So that's the story. This is why he's telling the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. One was a religious leader. One was a pastor. One was a pastor and, um, of this wonderful church. It's down in Florida, all right? And great, you know, great pastor, you know, just awesome guy, all right? And, and the, other, the other worked for the IRS, okay? <laughs> yeah, boo. Yeah. If you work for the IRS today, we love you, okay? All right? We really do. You have a job to do like everybody else. Okay? Um, so here's the comparison. Jesus sets it up. Here's the comparison. Great pastor. You know, he's awesome, wonderful guy who works as a tax collector. Works for the IRS. Everybody hates. Nobody likes the IRS. Anybody of you look, for getting, look forward to getting a letter from the IRS? Anybody ever like that? Happened to me here a couple years ago, and your heart drops automatically. You open that thing up from the IRS. I'm like, oh, man. All right. <clears throat> so how does, then they begin to pray. Prayer is a good thing, right? So the pastor begins to pray. Notice how he prays. He's standing by himself. Look at that. He's standing by himself. I want you to understand that an arrogant spirit is often by itself. And he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm not like all these scoundrels out here. I'm thank you. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I haven't done all these things. Or even like this tax, Lord, I'm not like this guy over here either. All right, Lord, thank you that I'm better. I'm better than all of them. Now, we don't come out and say that. But in our hearts, sometimes we feel that way. No, I'm not what I should be, but thank God I'm not like them. I may not be, I'm not be all I'm supposed to be, but I know I'm far sight better than Brian. All right? 
<laughs> now see, our, hearts, our heart is deceitful that way. And even if we don't voice those words, our heart sometimes feels this way. And he says, I fa-, and now he illustrates, I fast twice a week. Well, good for you, man. That's great. I guess that's better than fasting once a week. He fasts, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Look at all this stuff that I do. Now Jesus says, I want you to see the other guy. I want you to see the guy that works for the IRS over here. The tax collector standing afar off. I want you to notice something. He's standing afar off, but it doesn't say of him that he's alone. It doesn't say that he was by himself. Because he wasn't. Because the scripture says that God resists the proud. He stands against. He pushes away from the proud. But he gives grace. He embraces. He gets close to the humble. He comes in close. He's standing afar off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right, two things. You want a poverty of spirit. This ongoing work, and by the way, poverty of spirit is an ongoing thing in your life. It is not something you achieve and then have it forever. I can give you example after example, both in Scripture and just in, in church life, where those who were extremely humble, those who had incredible poverty of spirit, and they didn't end so well, is a danger for all of us, every single one of us. Ron Dunn used to say that the greatest danger for God using us in the future is the fact that he's used us in the past. Because pride comes in. So what are the two things in this passage? Number one, stop comparing yourself with people and start comparing yourself to Jesus. Stop comparing yourself to people and start comparing yourself to Jesus. What did the Pharisee do? He's looking, Lord, thank you, I'm not like all these folks. If you look around, especially externally, if you're just looking at external things, you're always going to find people who make you feel good about yourself, okay? In whatever way, you're going to think, I'm better than they are. Yeah, I'm not as good as them, but I'm not going to hang around them. I'm not going to look at them too much. I'm gonna, I'd rather look over these folks who make me feel good about me. I'm better than them. Stop. Stop it. Cut it out. Don't do it. Quit. I don't know how else to say it. Don't do that. You say, well, what am I supposed to do? That's the reason I gave you the other part. By the power of the Holy Spirit, start comparing everything in your life to Jesus. Okay? So how was Jesus righteous? Well, he was perfect. He didn't sin. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. All right? So when I start feeling a little uppity, a little self-righteous, I just look at Jesus and think, oh, I kind of missed the mark there. Again, I find somebody over here, and in my human wisdom and in, in my human comparison, I feel pretty good. So don't. Scripture says, Paul said, if you compare yourself among yourself, you're not wise. You're not wise. Now, this is as natural as peanut butter and jelly, okay? It really is to compare with other people. It, we don't even have to, as we said in 6-4 this morning, it's our default setting. We don't even have to try. Comparison with other people, it happens all the time. Even if we don't say it out loud, it's happening internally. We do it. 
And so I'm asking the Holy Spirit on a daily basis to remind me, to, to help me recognize when I'm comparing myself to someone else and to break that and stop it and, say, and now help me compare that to Jesus. How did Jesus treat people in his life who were mean to him? How did he do that? With mercy. As a matter of fact, the scripture says, Jesus says, we're going to get to it later on in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to bless those who curse you. I want you to pray for those who despitefully use you. Actually, he said he wants you to love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Those who are purposely mean to you, pray for them. Pray for them. And he didn't say, pray, God, get them. That wasn't, what, that wasn't a prayer. That prayer is easy. God, get them. They deserve it. You get them. That's not what he said. No. I had a mentor in my life who once said, and it was helpful, pray for them every blessing you want God to bring on you. That was very helpful to me. Now, that's a work of the Spirit. You won't do that on your own. You will not, the flesh will not do that, I promise you. It will not. It cannot. It's incapable. The Spirit will do that work in you. Poverty of spirit will do that work in you. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Compare yourself to Jesus in everything. He's the only standard that matters for you and me. This will help us in so many ways because when I start trying to decide, is this right or is this wrong? Should I do this or should I not do this? Then the only standard I have is Jesus. Well, what if I'm following Jesus and they're not? I'm not comparing myself to them. I'm not looking at them. I'm following Jesus. Now, if they see me following Jesus, they get excited and say, I want to follow with you. Great. If they decide they're going to follow Jesus and it looks a different way, that's between them and Jesus. Because I'm not comparing. I'm telling you, folks, this is revolutionary. Can you imagine how happy you'd be if you didn't have comparisons with other people? I mean, it would literally change you on the inside. I don't have to compare myself in any way to anyone else. Just Jesus. Now, when I'm doing it with Jesus, I'm always going to fall short. And you say, well, that's, that's a bummer. That's going to make you feel really bad. No, the exact opposite happens. I compare myself to Jesus, and I hum I'm humbled by that, and I cry out to him, which is point number two. You have to ask. You have to be an asker in order to have poverty of spirit. You have to ask. What did the, the, the tax collector do? The guy who worked for IRS, what did he do? He said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He asked. He asked. He said, Lord, would you do for me what I cannot do? Which is the whole idea of poverty in spirit. I'm coming as a beggar. I have no hope. I have to ask. You say, what do I ask about? Ask about everything. Everything. There's nothing you don't ask about. I don't have wisdom. I don't know how to deal with these thoughts that are making me angry. I ask. Holy Spirit, help me. I don't know how to deal with this temptation. I ask. Holy Spirit, help me with this. I don't know what to do in this relationship. This person is getting on my nerves. I don't know what to do. I ask. I don't know what to do about this financial situation. I ask. You say, but I have asked, and I don't always get the answer I want. That's okay. Keep asking. It's not about the answer. It's about the process of becoming poor in spirit. It's something that God's doing on the inside. And as he does that on the inside, 
things often do change on the outside, but even if they don't, I'm still different. I'm still changed. Someone this week here in the church, I was talking to them and, and they, they were just sharing. They'd had a situation where they felt caught between a rock and a hard place. I didn't know what to do. You know, I feel pressured this way and I feel pressured this way and I'm frustrated and I'm trying to figure out and I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to fix it. And he said, just in that moment, there was a prompting just to pray and say, Lord, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what to do. Now, sometimes we do this, but you need to understand poverty of spirit is more than just saying, okay, Lord, this is a mess and would you please fix it? Or I don't know. And then we immediately get up and go about trying to fix it ourselves. Okay? <laughs> That's not really asking. That's, that's more griping than anything else. That's not really asking. Now, you can gripe. I think God gives you the... I don't think he gets offended that you gripe, but griping doesn't change you, okay? You need to understand that. Griping does not change you. There are counselors in this country who are rich because griping doesn't change you, okay? They get to do this over and over again, and there are great counselors. I'm not being critical there, but I'm saying that griping alone does not change you. Just speaking out what's bothering you doesn't change you, Okay? Do we all agree? Just speaking it out doesn't change you. There has to be something that comes along with that. Asking is different than griping. Asking is putting it out there and say, okay, Lord, I really am going to trust you. I'm looking for you to speak something to me that I haven't thought of before. I'm looking for you to move in a way I hadn't seen before. I'm looking for you to bring me a, a passage or a word or a testimony or something. You're, I'm, I'm expecting you to do something in this situation because I asked. This person said they asked and the Lord almost immediately put a thought in their head that they hadn't thought of before. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me and, and probably to you as well where you ask the Lord for something and he immediately brings a thought to you that you had not had up to that point. I believe this is what James means when it says if you lack wisdom, ask. And he gives he gives freely. He gives without making you feel foolish or ashamed for asking. So you try it this week. You have a situation. You don't know what to do with it. You ask the Lord, say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm asking you, would you speak? Would you move? Would you give me a thought? Would you give me a word? Would you give an idea? Would you speak through someone else? Would you change something? Would, Lord, I'm trusting you. And I'm not going to go try to fix it myself. Okay? Now, if, if your problem is that you got your hand on the stove and it's burning, okay, fix that one yourself, okay? Just pull your hand off, all right? So sometimes the things that we do in our life are self-inflicted, all right? And, and we can make a decision or a choice in that moment and we can change it. But a lot of times they're not. Or sometimes they're self-inflicted, but they've gotten to a point now we can't change it. So I'm coming and I'm asking. You want to have poverty of spirit? Stop comparing yourself to other people. Compare yourself to Jesus and Him alone. And then be an asker. I don't even know if an asker is a word. We're going to make it a word for this morning, okay? Be an asker. Ask and ask and keep on asking. Because the very process of asking humbles us. It produces the very thing that we desperately need because I keep asking. I like, to, I like to read and study about um, people. I like to, to, especially those who accomplish things in whatever field or whatever area. 
You know, I found a common trait in people who accomplish things in any area of life. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. But I found a common trait in all of them. They're always asking questions and learning. They're always. I haven't found one. I haven't read about, I haven't read an article or a book or watched an interview with one yet where I didn't see this common trait. And it doesn't matter how good they are at what they already do. They're asking questions and learning. They're asking questions and receiving. Be an asker. And don't get frustrated. See, that's the other thing. I ask, but I'm impatient. I want my answer right this second. I want God to do it right now. Like, no, Lord, I'm not going to try to fix this on my own. I'm just waiting. I want you to do something with me. I want you to stand with me right where you are. Now, I realize that if you're like me, I just gave you two things. And so you've made mental note of that or you've written it down and you've got some ideas already. And so I'm going to go out of here and I'm going to quit comparing myself with other people and I'm going to be an asker. I'm going to do those things. And if we're not careful, we will just continue on in a sense of self-effort and self-righteousness. And I can do this. So here's where we start together. We ask, Holy Spirit, would you help me? Would you help me stop comparing myself to other people? Would you cause me to see it and recognize it when it's happening? In the moment that it's happening, would you show me? And then would you prompt me in that moment to ask you for help? To ask you to change me? To ask you to reveal what I need to see? Would you do that? And see, what I've done here, what we're doing here is I'm not taking it on myself, independent of the Lord, to do this. I'm acknowledging the need for it in my life and my willingness to surrender to Him and to cooperate with Him as He does it through me. You say, does it matter which way you do it? It makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. So, Lord Jesus, here we are. We're people in need. Now, Lord, we may not recognize that to the degree that we need to. As a matter of fact, it's probably certain we don't. So we're asking, open our eyes, open the eyes of my heart. Let me see my need more than I've seen it before. And Lord, rather than overwhelming me, let it be a catalyst for me to receive from you, to ask you, to believe you. You can do this, you will do this in all of our lives, in every area. We're gonna sing and worship together as we close this morning. I'm going to ask my prayer partners to come on down too. After we sing, if we can pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, that's what we're here for. 
And again, that's why we ask. That's why we pray, because we go to the Lord, we ask Him. We don't have the answers, we ask Him. This is a prayer. As the worship team leads us, let's pray it with them. Let's sing it with them.